I want to invite you guys to turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 25. You're deviating a little bit from the book of John. Pastor Dan is not here today. He's sick. So I'm filling in. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and Dan gave me two instructions. He said, preach on anything in the Bible and talk about Jesus. And so I thought, that's awesome. I mean, this is a huge book. There's so much I could talk about. And then I got kind of overwhelmed because this is such a huge book and there's so much I could talk about. So I was kind of racking my brain like, what do I, what do I talk about? Well, luckily, uh, in my community group, I've been teaching for the last few months. We've been going through the Old Testament. So we went through Genesis, and I've been teaching on Genesis. We went through Exodus and Leviticus, and we're almost done with Numbers. And so I thought, well, I have a couple days to prepare for this. I'm going to speak on something I've already spoken on before. So that's why we're in the maybe obscure book of Numbers to some of you. I mean, how many of you have recently read Numbers? Like, yeah, all three of us, some of us in our group, maybe. Yeah, so let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a situation in life where you did something you shouldn't have done and the consequences of your sin were vastly greater than you expected? Have you ever been in a situation in life where you only planned on just a little bit of sin, but after you tasted just a little bit, it left you filled with an insatiable craving for more and more. Have you ever been in a situation in life where your little bit of sin gave birth to many other sins and started to drag you down a path that you had never intended to go down? Growing up in my elementary school, if you wanted to be cool, you owned a skateboard. You rode a skateboard, you talked about skateboarding, you read skateboard magazines, you watched skateboard videos, you wore skateboard shoes, you wore name brand skateboard clothing. So what did I ride around with? No, a scooter. (laughs) Needless to say, I was not cool because that's not cool. So when I wanted to become cool, I got a skateboard and I became one of the skater kids. And at the top of the skater kid clique was a guy named Ryan. Ryan was really cool. And all the girls really liked Ryan. I think it was because of his wavy hair, but I thought maybe if I hang out with Ryan, some of the girls will like me too. You know, I wanted to be cool by association with Ryan. I wanted to be liked by association with Ryan. And everyone wanted to hang out with Ryan. Everyone wanted to be friends with Ryan. Everyone wanted to be seen with Ryan. And so I started inviting Ryan to hang out with me after school. And I hung out with him at his house. And he hung out with me at my house. And we went skating together. And I even invited him to my youth group. We heard about the gospel of Jesus together. And we sang songs to God together. And we memorized scripture together. Me and Ryan. But after a while, Ryan started to pull away from me, and I started to pull away from Ryan too. Because Ryan got involved with the wrong crowd, and he started getting into a lot of trouble at school. 
and I didn't want to be associated with him anymore. At an early age, Ryan and I began to take very different paths. And one bad choice after another with the wrong crowd would later get Ryan into a lot of trouble, even with hard drugs. And in 2002, I came home from two years of Bible college in Minnesota, and that summer, July 14th, Ryan and a friend took heroin and Xanax and met up with a drug dealer at the Safeway in Arlington, and they stole marijuana from the dealer, and then they smoked that marijuana, and then they took more heroin, and then they went to grab weapons, and they grabbed three of their friends, and they went to meet up with the dealer and 12 of his friends for a fight. And during that fight, Ryan was shot in the head with a nine millimeter pistol. Then Ryan was rushed to the hospital and he died the next day. Ryan, my old friend, let me ask again, have you ever been in a situation in life where you did something you shouldn't have done and the consequences of your sin were vastly greater than you expected? Have you ever been in a situation in life where you only planned on committing a little bit of sin, but after you tasted just a little bit, it left you with an insatiable craving for more and more? Have you ever been in a situation in life where your little bit of sin gave birth to many other sins and started to drag you down a path that you had never intended to go down? Ryan probably did not see death as the consequential culmination of all his sin. Ryan probably didn't see that Getting, that by getting in with the wrong crowd at such a young age that he would eventually be exposed to drugs, drugs and then eventually become addicted to drugs and then eventually end up dying for his drugs. But you know what? Ryan, Ryan is no different than you and me because the end of all sin is death. Not just physical death. Physical death is part of the curse of sin, but spiritual death we know this. We know that the just consequence of sinning for a lifetime against the holy God is punishable, is a crime punishable by death. We know this. And I hope to show you this morning through Numbers chapter 25 that sin is a monster, that sin is much worse than you and me can even fathom, that sin wants for you all the things that God does not want for you. Sin wants to oppose God and his word and his will at every moment. Sin wants to control you and have its way with you. Sin wants to deceive your mind so that you cannot see its evil and consequences. Sin wants to enslave your soul so that you cannot say no to temptation. Sin wants to harden your, your heart so you cannot listen to, to God. Sin wants to blind your eyes so that you cannot see the beauty of God. Sin wants to keep you living out who you were created to be. Sin wants to destroy your life and your family and your friends, your friendships. Sin wants to bring you to utter ruin and misery and ultimately, sin wants to drag you down with it to death. But I've titled this message, The Life and Death of Sin. 
because I want to show you not only the life of sin, but also the death of it. How it was put to death 2,000 years ago at the cross of Christ. And I want to show you how you can be putting it to death in your own life today. So before we dig in, let me pray for us and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, I just come before you. God, a sinful man. God, a man in need of your grace, a man in need of your illumination to show me what your word means. And God, I pray the same for us right now that you would just open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word. God, I pray that your word would go forth and accomplish what you desire. Lord God, you always accomplish what you desire. God, help us now to see both the severity of our sin and the kindness of God. Lord, help us to, as far as we go in seeing sin, God, to see that your love for us is greater than it. Lord God, help us now. Amen. So, Numbers 25. I gotta give you a little bit of context, unless you all are really familiar with numbers. Okay, I'll give you a little context. Actually, I'm gonna give you all of the context because I think that will be really helpful. So back in Genesis, God created the world and everything in it, including Adam and Eve, who wanted to set themselves up as equals with God. And with the persuasion of a crafty serpent, they rebelled against him. And at that point, shockwaves Shockwaves of sin were sent out affecting all of creation. Creation became uncreation. Everything now tended toward disarray and decay and death. And sin became the governing principle in the hearts of men. And God might have taken the lives of Adam and Eve right there, right then and there, but he didn't. He didn't, he, he instead pursued them for relationship and right after they had gone astray. And he even promised in Genesis 3.15 that someone was going to come and crush the head of that serpent. Later on, God pursued another person, a pagan man, a pagan man named Abram. God told Abram to leave everything behind that he had ever known, all of his gods, everything. Leave it behind and follow me. Come become a follower of the one true God. And God renamed him Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and said to Abraham that through him and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that he would give to Abraham and his descendants the land of Canaan. Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the people of Abraham would be God's people. Then Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac had a son, Jacob, and God renamed Jacob Israel. And the descendants of Israel, God's chosen people, began became known as the Israelites. So fast forward a few hundred years, and in the book of Exodus, God's chosen people, the Israelites, become enslaved under Egypt, and that lasts for 430 years. But in a great Exodus, God brings his chosen people out of Egypt through a man named Moses, 
and then he gives them his law and commandments at Sinai, and he begins to lead them to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And, but the book of Numbers records that instead of journeying straight to Canaan by the will of God, which should have taken only a few days, you know how long they wandered in the wilderness? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their faithlessness, because of their sin, because of their rebellion against God and his word and his will. And so right before Numbers chapter 25 and in chapters 22 through 24, Balak, the king of a land called Moab, hires a sorcerer, a sorcerer named Balaam to come and call down a curse upon God's people. And why? Because God was faithfully leading Israel to the place he promised to give them, Canaan, and was crushing their enemies through him, through them, along the way, and Moab was an enemy right in their path, right in their path on the way to Canaan. But Balak's plan to curse God's people was frustrated when God responded to his efforts by saying that not only would his people not be cursed, uh uh-uh, his people were abundantly blessed, and nothing, nothing could thwart that blessing. Balaam tries to curse God's people three times, but he fails every single time because the enemies of God's people, even the supernatural powers of darkness, had no power over those whom God had chosen to bless. But do you know what did have power over God's people? Significant power? a different power of darkness. Sin, fleshly desire, the governing principle in the hearts of men. In Revelation chapter two, verse 14, tells us that before Balaam left Balak, Balaam the sorcerer, Balak the king of Moab, before Balaam left Balak, after failing to curse Israel, he suggested that if Balak wanted Israel to fall, he should send ritual prostitutes to go and seduce the men of Israel to sleep with them and to come to Moab and to feast with them and to worship and sacrifice to their gods because this heinous act of sin against the Lord their God would surely corrupt and destroy Israel. And also this heinous act of sin would assimilate or integrate the men of Israel into Moab's land, Moab's society, Moab's culture, Moab's worship. And as a result of this assimilation, Moab would perhaps avoid being conquered by them in battle on their way to the promised land. Does that make sense? This plan appeared to be foolproof. So let's read chapter 25 together. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These 
women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people, the men of Israel, ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal or Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber, the bedroom, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. 24,000 of God's people. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of the father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So Balak sent prostitutes into Israel And verses 1 through 3 say that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These women invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate in their feasts and bowed down in worship to their gods. So Israel yoked himself, yoked himself to Baal of Peor. So if you remember the context, Israel has just been spared from the sorcerer's supernatural cursing by a divine intervention of God, but then immediately and willingly many of their men participate in this heinous act of sin against their God. Okay, so notice in the text the progression here. Notice what happens. First, some of the men of Israel are seduced by ritual prostitutes that Balak sends from Moab. And then, and then these men begin having sexual relations with them. And then 
these men follow them into Moab and then these men participate in their feasts and make sacrifices too and worship their gods. And then these men completely, having completely forsaken the Lord their God, are said to have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. These Israelite men were in a situation where they did something they knew they shouldn't have done and the consequences of their sin was vastly greater than they expected. These Israelite men were in a situation where they only planned on committing a little bit of sin, but after they tasted just a little bit, they were filled with an insatiable craving for more and more. These Israelite men were in a situation where their little bit of sin gave birth to many other sins and started to drag them down a path that they probably never intended to go down. In the end, they became yoked to another God. Now, what does it mean when the text says that they yoked themselves? What does it mean to be yoked to something? Our English word yoked, uh, the Hebrew, so, The Old Testament is written primarily in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. The New Testament is written in Greek. And our English word yoked comes from the Hebrew word tzamad. Tzamad, it means to bind or to join or to attach. And so when Israel began worshiping another god, the Bible says that they became attached to it. They became joined to this God. They became bound to this God. And the Bible calls this kind of yoking enslavement. We become slaves to the things we worship that are not the true God. We become slaves to the things we worship that are not the true God. And then at the end of verse three, it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And in response to the people's sin, God did two things. So number one, God commanded Moses in verse four, he says, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So the chiefs, These are like the pastors, the chiefs, the guys who were supposed to be shepherding the people who had participated in this heinous act of sin. They were supposed to be leading them and teaching them and protecting them and training them in all manner of righteousness and confronting them in their sin, stepping in and doing something. These men were to be publicly executed for neglecting their pastoral duties. Number two, God sent a plague throughout the whole congregation of Israel. Everybody was affected by this. Throughout the whole congregation, in verse nine, says that those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the plague would have killed more. But the preceding verse, verse eight, says that the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. And the way that it came to be stopped is an interesting story. While Moses and the congregation of Israel were weeping and grieving at the entrance of the tent of meeting over the heinous act of sin that the men of Israel had committed, one of those men named Zimri brought 
one of Balak's women, a Midianite prostitute named Cosby, back home to his family. So in the middle in the middle of a plague that is killing thousands and thousands of people, and the people of God repenting and crying out, begging God for mercy and forgiveness, this man comes strolling down the road with this woman and walks right into the bedroom of the family tent, right in front of everybody. So as to say, I don't care that thousands of people are falling down dead right and left. So as to say, I don't care that you're all out here interceding for us in prayer. So as to say, I don't care what your elders and chiefs think. I don't care what Moses thinks. So as to say, this is a heinous act of sin against God, but you know what? I'm going to do this anyway. Have you ever been in that place? (laughs) Mentally? Spiritually? Seeing yourself, I just don't care anymore. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do what I want to do and no one is going to stop me. This was an outrage against God, against the people of Israel, a complete disgrace and dishonor. This was a public display of sin and defiance against God and right in the face of the people's repentance, no less. In verses 7 and 8, say that when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, saw Zimri and Cosby walk into the family tent together, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber, the bedroom where they might have been having sex that very moment, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. In other words, this execution of justice, death for heinous sin would appease God's wrath against it and put a stop to the plague. But why? Why? God said to Moses in verses 10 through 11, In verse 13, he says, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people in my jealousy. He was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. In other words, God was saying that Phinehas did exactly what he would have done. He was jealous for his God. He was jealous with his jealousy and thus God's wrath was turned away. Now, let me be clear because that brings up a question. Does that mean that we can go out and kill people for their sin? God does not command us today to do what Phineas did. Okay, we, we cannot make atonement for anyone. We cannot appease God's wrath by executing his justice. And Why? because Christ would come to do that 1,400 years later, okay, once and for all. And so the text just describes an event that occurred in a very unique context of redemptive history before Christ came, where God exercised justice through this man, but the text does not prescribe for us to do likewise. God will never ask you to take another person's life to execute his justice in that way. 
because Christ already came to do that. Christians are called to love and service, not human sacrifice. And to be clear, I'm not speaking about capital punishment, okay? That's different. But I'm talking about you specifically taking justice into your own hands. But here in this passage, God blesses Phineas for his action. And he said in verses 12 and 13, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. In other words, God would bless Phineas and his descendants with the priesthood because God wanted people like him serving in his tabernacle. God wanted people like him serving in his tabernacle. And then in verses 14 and 15, these two people, Zimri and Kong, mentioned again by name. Why? To make it clear that these two are an example of heinous sin for all time. How would you like for your name to be mentioned in the Bible only in a couple places for something you did like this? The only thing you'd be remembered for throughout history is your sin. You'd only be remembered as an example of what not to do, what not to be. Do you want to be remembered as an example of what not to do, what not to be? How do you think by the way you're living now you'll be remembered? Lastly, in the story, God tells Moses to follow Phineas' example, to go and to strike down the Midianites collectively. And in chapter 31, that's what we see. Israel goes to war against Midian, executing the Lord's justice and vengeance against them for trying to destroy his people. You know what? This story tells us a lot about the Christian life. Because for the follower of Christ, he too is on a journey to a promised land, the greater promised land, a city whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10 says, a better country that is a heavenly one. Hebrews 11.16 says, and not only are there many enemies that threaten us along the way, but for the follower of Christ, the follower of Christ is engaged in a constant battle. The follower of Christ is engaged in a constant battle against the world, against Satan, and also against ourselves, our own sin. And the truth is that for the Christian, for the Christian, he is his own worst enemy. Because contrary to popular belief, sin is not just a wrong, naughty, mean, or hurtful thing that we do. Rather, sin is something sick and sinister inside of us, the Bible says. Our heart's corruption is violent and enticing and entangling, and it gives birth to many evils and whores after many lovers and seeks to worship anything and everything that is not the true God. Our hearts are at war within us and against us. Our hearts are at war within us and against us. 
Sometimes we sin by doing the wrong thing. That's called commission. Sometimes we sin by failing to do the right thing. That's called omission. Sometimes we sin by doing the right thing with the wrong motivation. Don't you know that even good actions can proceed from a filthy heart? Don't you know that good actions can proceed from a proud heart? A selfish heart? A heart that only seeks the attention and praise of others? A heart that says, Look at me, look at me and how great I am. And sin begins in the heart and then like a toxic venom pumps out of our hearts, runs through our veins and seeps into every pocket of life, influencing our every thought, desire, motivation, word and action leading only to death. Begins in the heart. It's toxic venom. Think about this. Who would be seduced by a prostitute but a man who has lust in his heart? Who would be seduced by a prostitute? Sleeping with a prostitute is itself just an opportunity for sin, but the heart is the breeding ground of lustful desires and the place where sin begins. The heart is the breeding ground of lustful desires and the place where sin begins. In James 1, 14 and 15, James writes, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James tells us that there's like this three-step progression of sin. First, there is the conception of evil desire in the heart. That's the first thing. The desire which entices us and lures us and then tempts us to act. And second, the evil desire gives birth to sin. Starts in the heart, gives birth to sin. When the evil desire is given an opportunity to act, it acts. And third, when sin becomes fully grown, it results in death. So three things, birth, conception rather, birth, death, desire, sin, and fully grown sin. Now James is saying here that fully grown sin, the end of fully grown sin, the the end of its growth and maturation is death. Death is at the finish line of sin, James is saying. And because of our heart's nature to worship, our sin can quickly move from a mistake to a trend and from a trend to a problem. And the Bible says from a problem to enslavement. And many people will die as slaves to sin without hope. Let me say that again. Our sin can quickly move from a mistake to a trend and from a trend to a problem and from a problem to enslavement and many people will die in their sin with no hope. And when I say sin, I'm speaking of many sins. I'm speaking of all sin. James says in James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. And maybe you've noticed this in your own life. Sins are never alone, are they? Sins are always accompanied by other sins. Sometimes we have to commit a bunch of little sins along the way to get to commit the big sin that we really want to commit. And then once we've committed the bigger sin, sometimes we have to sin more to cover it up, right? 
just because our hearts are set on one sin doesn't mean that we will not commit a lot of other sins <laughs> to get to that sin, to cover up that sin. When you decide that you are going to sin, you are willingly stepping onto a sinking ship caught in a whirlpool of consequences. And once you're caught in the whirlpool, it's going to suck you and many other sins right down along with it. And you can never predict where you're going to wind up. Let me say that one more time. When you decide that you are going to sin, you are willingly stepping onto a sinking ship caught in a whirlpool of consequences. And once you are caught in that whirlpool, it is going to suck you and many other sins right down along with it. And you can never predict where you're going to end up. Just like Ryan. Just like Ryan, who would have never predicted that getting in with the wrong crowd would lead to him being exposed to drugs and would lead to him being addicted to drugs and would eventually lead to his own death. And this is precisely what happened here in Numbers. The men of Israel had no idea that the lust in their hearts would eventually lead them to being yoked to another God. But sin had its way with them and they descended further and further into more base evil and corruption and dishonor and they forsook the Lord their God. And the bad news is, this is the story of our lives. This is the story of our lives. Though we may love, though we may genuinely love and worship and follow God, there's something deep within us in our flesh that still loves sin, something within us that still wants to follow evil, still wants to worship other gods, and we do. Though we may not bow down to figurines carved out of stone or wood, we do find ourselves bowing down to our possessions or our careers or our relationships, our hobbies or our goals or our greed or our lusts ourselves, our image and reputation. We will worship and make many sacrifices to the things we put in the position of glory in our lives. We will worship and make many sacrifices to those things we put in the position of glory in our lives. And often those things are not God. Our end should be the same end as the chiefs of the people of Israel who were hung in the sun before the Lord. Our end should be the same end as Zimri and Cosby to be run through with a sword. Our end should be eternal death and separation from God forever because that is the only thing our sin has ever earned us. That is the only thing we have ever deserved. But God, aren't you thankful for the but gods in Scripture? But God, but God in his grace and mercy does not leave the people he loves to the same fate as the chiefs of the people of Israel. But God in his grace and mercy does not leave the people he loves to the same fate as Zimri and Cosby. God in his grace and mercy does not leave the people he loves to be taken away by death or to be separated from him forever or to reap the consequences of their own sin. Why not? Why not? Because
because God in his grace and mercy sent his own son into the world to, like Phineas, carry out God's justice against the sins of his people. But Jesus was not your average hero. He didn't do it in the same way. Jesus would win the greatest victory the world had ever seen or known through defeat. Not through strength, but through weakness. Not through a great act of valor, but through humility. Not by slaying the enemy, but by himself being slain by the enemy. Not through carrying out justice against others, but through having the justice that others deserve carried out, poured out upon him. On the cross, Jesus became like Zimri and Cosby, who were pierced for transgressions. On the cross, Jesus became like the priests who were hung in the sun before the Lord. And why? To put to death our greatest enemy, our own sin, all our apostasy against God, all our idolatry, every evil, every corruption, every impure imagination, every tainted affection, every lie, every secret, all of it, so that we might lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and run after God, so that we might, like Phineas, become zealous followers of the Lord, jealous for his jealousy and passionate about his glory and honor and praise, so that we might, by God's grace, become the righteousness of God in Christ. My friends, in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Just like the sirens of ancient Greek mythology, beautiful women-like creatures who seduced the hearts of sailors with their bodies and voices, causing them to crash their ships to their doom and destruction. So sin may be a delight to the eyes or a delight to the ears or promise the heart pleasure, but its seduction leads only to shipwreck, inevitable doom, inevitable death. Hate sin. Hate it because it's a sinking ship going down to death. Why would we love a sinking ship going down to death? Remember this when sin looks more enjoyable, more delightful, more pleasing than God. Remember the story of the men of Israel here in Numbers who fell into sexual sin when it looked more enjoyable than God and wound up worshiping false gods. And remember the plague God sent against his own people as punishment for their heinous sin and the vengeance God executed against the Midianites for trying to destroy Israel through this way, through this heinous act of sin. But also, remember Jesus, who, when God's justice demanded our death, came into this world to literally carry out our death sentences to die in our place as a sinless substitute and to, in the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, crush the head of the serpent, destroying the works and effects of Satan, delivering us from the present evil age and setting us free from the power and consequences of sin forever to bring us, to carry us into the greater promised land where we'll be with him forever 
in heaven. So let's get practical. How can we kill sin in our own lives? Be killing sin by remembering that by God's grace through faith, you are a new creation in Christ. The old you has gone. The new you has come. The alive you is here. When Christ died, you died. And your life and your victory over sin and death is united with his. Be killing sin by walking in the freedom and newness of life that you now have, which you didn't have before you knew Jesus. Live out who you now are. Live out who you now are. Be killing sin by hating it. Remembering that sin put your best friend to death and dishonors you and your heavenly father and seeks to utterly destroy you. Be killing sin by exposing and rebelling against its deceptions with the light of the truth of God's word. Be killing sin by declaring radical allegiance to the Lord and by daily surrendering to him your mind with its thoughts, your heart with its affections, and your body with its desires. Be killing sin by actively avoiding situations where you know you'd be tempted to sin, whether physically or mentally or emotionally or spiritually. Be killing sin by resisting the way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the things the world believes, and the things the world loves. Christians, we are called to live in the world, but not to become part of it. Why? Because God has called us out of the world. We have been called out of the world, and we are now of God. We are meant to be like boats floating above the ocean of the world. But if water gets inside, we'll sink. We know this. We have all had experiences where we begin to sink. Be killing sin by continually renewing your mind with the truth of God's word. Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 4.8, he said, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Be killing sin by admitting your shortcomings, by confessing your sin and by asking for forgiveness, not only from God, but also from one another. Be killing sin by asking God to help you. (laughs) Only God, only God has the power to help you battle and defeat sin in your life. You can't do it on your own. Philippians 2.13 says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Some translations say both to will and to do for his good pleasure. It is God at work within you. You do not kill sin on your own. Be killing sin by being part of a solid community of faith like this church or a community group or a ministry group where like-minded people will encourage you in the truth and lift up your burdens to Christ with you and encourage you in the faith and be killing sin by fighting it. It's hard. It's painful. And in the moment, sometimes the tug of sin in the heart is almost unbearable, but you can fight it. Don't let sin win. 
sin is an enemy that wants to kill you. Kill it first. Sin is an enemy that wants to kill you. Kill it first. And be killing sin by being very, very, very careful to do it with the right motivation. Fight your sin from a place of faith in the finished work of Jesus and not from a place of moral superiority or pride or works of the law or trying to be a good person. You are engaged in a battle, yes, but it is a battle that was won decidedly 2,000 years ago at the cross of Christ and you did nothing to help And ultimately, you cannot lose this battle. You cannot lose this battle, not because of you, but because of him. Be motivated by him and his victory. Not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all the stories in the Old Testament God, that show your faithfulness to a people who have fallen into sin over and over and over, who have rebelled against you over and over and over. Lord God, but you are the faithful and true. You are so good to evil people. God, you love the unloving. You love me. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And God, may we rejoice and say, death, where is your power? Death, where is your your sting? Sin, you have lost your power over me because I belong to Jesus. God, I thank you that the curse of sin has no hold over those who have turned from their sin and trusted in you for salvation. We thank you for providing a way through your son. God, may we now walk in the light and the truth of your word and seek to bring you glory in all things, Lord God, knowing that we have been forgiven of an infinite debt through your son. We ask this in your name. Amen.